the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise for this evening as we gather together as a community to dive into your word. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our reading of sacred scripture, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive whatever you have in store for us this evening, and that you would bless us each in the ways that we most need it. We pray, Lord, especially for uh, those fighting the fire over by the high school, that you would just allow that not to get out of control and allow all those first responders to be safe and everyone to be protected. And we pray, Lord, for our time here, uh, that you would just guide us and allow the word to convict us and challenge us and allow us to peel back the layers and understand you, encounter you, know you more deeply. Anything that is seeking to distract us or anything that is causing us any worry or anxiety this evening, we lay at your feet, Lord, and we just ask that your will be done. Allow us to be free of any distractions so that we can enter in, participate, and just allow your word to wash over us. We pray all of these things in your most precious name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome back. We're in John chapter 14, verses 23 through 29. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, the first Sunday, or the first, the sixth Sunday of Easter. So we're going to read through this twice. Again, John 14, 23 through 29. We're going to read through this twice. First time through, just get a picture for what is being said here. So we're continuing off where we were last week, yesterday's gospel. Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples on the night of the Last Supper, Holy Thursday, the night before he is going to be crucified. And in the Gospel of John, he delivers a very long discourse, sermon, or teaching, you could say, that lasts four chapters, from John 13 to John 17. So we're right in the middle of that, uh, and we're getting to a point this evening where he starts talking about the Holy Spirit, and that he's promising the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is going to come, um, and what that's going to do for his followers and for the, for the early church. So... We're going to read, we're going to pick up, um, it's going to sound like we're in the middle of something, but when you hear it this Sunday, it's going to begin, Jesus said to his disciples. So um, just kind of as a little excerpt here, but we'll talk about what happens before this. But we're in John 14, starting in verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, whoever loves me will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Yet the word you hear is not mine, but that of the Father who sent me. I have told you this while I am with you. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, that the Father will send in my name, he will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. You heard me tell you, I am going away and I will come back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it happens, so that when it happens... You may believe. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this a second time as usual. I invite you this time to listen more deeply and try and see if there's a particular word or phrase that just stands out to you for whatever reason. It does not have to be to interpret the passage or have anything to do with the passage, but it could be a word or a phrase that just stands out to you resonates with you for whatever reason, connects to something going on in your life, sparks a memory or a thought, whatever it may be. So try and empty your thoughts and your mind of everything other than the words as you're hearing them. And when something kind of sparks uh, a train of thought in your mind or resonates with you, make note of that, write it down, circle it, whatever you need to do, and begin to reflect on that. Why is God speaking to you through this? What is he trying to say? What is he trying to compel you to do? So one more time through John 14, starting in verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, Whoever loves me will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Yet the word you hear is not mine, but that of the Father who sent me. I have told you this while I am with you. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit that the Father will send in my name, he will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. You heard me tell you, I am going away and I will come back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to look over this passage and the things that stood out to you, why you think they did. And when you feel so inclined, feel free to share with those around you. If you're watching on Zoom, please share in the chat what stood out to you, any questions that you have. If you're watching this later on YouTube, please do that in the comments so we can get back to you. But for those of us here, uh, turn to those at your table once you're ready and just share what questions did this provoke in you, what stood out to you, why you think it did. And we'll spend about five or ten minutes sharing and then we'll come back to the larger group. And whether you had an opportunity to share at your table or not, I'd love to hear what are some of your thoughts, what stood out to you, why you think it stood out, or any questions that you have about this uh, particular passage. Katie, what do the folks on Zoom have to share with us? Okay. Hi. Okay. So the first person, Christine, she said, verse 27 speaks to me. Jesus leaves his peace and gives his peace. Sorry. Not as the world does. This gift of peace is firm and never-ending, and I imagine it I imagine I imagine it as comforting peace that will always be with them. It's hard to imagine the trials and troubles that they will face, yet God's peace will be a part of them always. And I'm always praying and asking the Lord for calm and peace when encountering daily challenges. But if I'm truly living God's word, wouldn't I always be living with his peace already instilled in me? Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Christine. And that phrase there, by the way, in, in that verse, uh, peace, I do not give it as the world gives. Where is it? Oh, not as the world gives, do I give it to you. That's a reference to a period of time that was happening at the time of Jesus called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There was this extent, you've probably heard about this in history, there's this extended period of time in the Roman Empire where there was a period of peace, there was no real war or anything like that. But that worldly sense of peace won by the Roman Empire was won through oppression and war, violence, and things like that. And so that's not a real you know, sense of peace that God is promising. You know, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you peace, not as the world gives, not like this peace, this quote-unquote peace that you're experiencing now, that's won by force and brutality and, you know, um, not honoring your free will, but it's a peace that's really going to set you free. Uh, and so there's a distinction made there that wouldn't be clear if we weren't aware of that kind of thing he's reference, referencing there. Any others on Zoom, Katie? No. No? Awesome. Thank you. Yes, John. We sort of had that same that same phrase we were going after. One of the things that just struck me about it is that we, we all saw peace in the universe and stars. The peace that we saw is free. Mm -hmm. It's like you were just saying peace he might have been referring to was war that was won by you know by violence. But there are set at least for me, the sense of peace that I I have felt that it's, it's always been free, something free. It's, it's either saw something from yeah. nature that just overwhelmed me, or it's in my personal relationships, or in music, at mass, and it's, it's a peace that uh, nobody can give. Yes. Yeah. yeah, to reiterate for the camera, for anyone who may not have heard that, peace is free. You know, it's our, we, we can choose to respond and receive that. You know, it connects us to other people. St. Mother Teresa, she said, um, if we've lost our peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to one another. It's a sense of you know, community. But you're right in the sense that, you know, we can choose how we respond to anything. You know, we can choose, and peace isn't this kind of contentment 
you know, that like everything's great. In fact, in, in John 16, later on in this discourse, at the end of 16, uh, Jesus tells the disciples of all of these things that are going to happen, that people are going to persecute them, that people are going to try and kill them in Jesus' name. And Jesus says this, I have told you this so that you might have peace in me. In the world you will have trouble, but take courage. I've conquered the world. And you're like, well, that's nice. Thanks, Jesus. Like, you know, you're telling us all this bad stuff has happened. And you're like, but I tell you this so that you will have peace. And if, we, if that sounds jarring to us, it might be because we have an inaccurate view of what peace really is. Okay, this word peace in Greek is irene. In Hebrew, it's shalom. Okay, so you've probably heard that before, shalom. And that Hebrew word shalom, when you wish someone peace or shalom, you're, wish, you're wishing them a sense of wholeness. You know, a sense of completeness in their life. Fulfillment. To us, peace might just be like a moment of quiet. Or everything on my to-do list is done. Right? And if we think of peace that way, just like not being busy or accomplishing a lot of tasks, we're really never going to feel at peace, at least not for very long. But what John is getting at is what real peace is. It's that fruit of the Holy Spirit. Peace is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And when we live out of the Holy Spirit, we can have peace in any circumstance. You know, we, we can choose how we respond to everything. No one can take that away from you. It's your own free gift. No matter what possessions you might lose or that things people might take from you, no matter what might be robbed from you, no one can take your peace. You can choose to let it go. You can choose to respond in a different way. And it's very difficult in a lot of difficult moments to respond in a sense that brings you peace, but it's always possible. And that is the type of freedom that Jesus is promising and recognizing, look, if you, if you recognize that your peace is in me, that your fulfillment is in me, your wholeness is in me, and not in any of these things out in the world that the world promises you, then no matter what comes your way, no matter what you lose or whatever you gain, you'll have this overarching sense of freedom, detachment from all of those other things, because you are anchored in who you are, your identity in the Lord and the Lord alone, no matter what you have or what you don't have. So it's a very important distinction for us as Christians, a very important virtue. Yeah, Bruce. Is part of this piece the absence of fear? Hmm. He often tells people, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And when we're afraid, we don't have any peace. Yeah. So I just wondered if that's buried in there. Yeah, well, he says it right after, doesn't he? So it would imply that do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. By the way, it's the most repeated phrase in all of Scripture, do not be afraid. Over 365 times uh, repeated in the entire Bible. Uh, more than God loves you, more than, you know, it's the most important and repeated phrase or message that God wants to instill in his people, that you have no need to fear. Um, so I would say peace isn't necessarily the removal of fear. It's the removal of a paralyzing response due to fear. You know, because fear, uh, put it this way, um, you know, the opposite of love is not hate. Okay, it is fear. Because hate is actually, you are, you are still committing an action. You're still using your free will to respond to another person. When you are in a relationship and you suddenly get afraid, then you get paralyzed. You do nothing. You are no longer using your free will. You're no longer participating in that relationship. And so it inhibits you completely. And so that sense of fear is what God wants us to be, uh, be free of. However, it's not a guarantee that fears won't come our way. And so it's kind of the idea, I've shared you know, um, a story before behind this, but it's that, that sense of uh, be afraid and then do it anyway. Be afraid and then do it anyway. Acknowledging the fear, acknowledging that, oh, I'm having this response right now. Because a lot of fear is just a, a sympathetic nervous system response, right? Fight or flight or freeze. You, know, you can't really help it to be afraid, but you can help whether or not you act upon that fear, whether or not you allow it to paralyze you, or you can look past it and overcome it. And so I don't think Jesus is saying here, you're never going to be afraid again. I think what he's saying here is when you are trusting in me and you have peace in me, fear will no longer stop you, even if you are afraid. Nick? I think with that, um, it makes me think of the word acceptance. Mm -hmm. You know, accepting what the world can bring, because that's an element that's a primal nature that we have, you know, that we want to control things. You, you think about it, the fear, fear response, if you just operate off of it, then you know, run, you know, just act out. You're essentially a slave to your emotions. Yeah. And I think with this, the peace allows you to accept those emotions, mm -hmm. like you're saying, act as you, as you will. 
I think also with that, it, it can allow us to put our own needs because from that primal aspect versus a spiritual aspect, the primal focuses on needs, wants, mm-hmm. so that can lead that can lead into the self uh, self sacrificing nature, mm-hmm. or the you know self sacrificing part that we set everything aside. We're at peace. We accept that at, at, at the worst, what we can die. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's just the association with that, that we can move from that and say, it's not about me, it's about those around me. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And it, I think I shared this before too, like the, a simple way to do this, to kind of put this into practice, is anything that happens throughout the course of your day or your life, uh, if it's negative, especially something happens, the first word out of your mouth or that happens in your mind in your response is just good. And then you find a way to justify that statement. Oh, I'm sorry to tell you, you're fired. Good. I can pursue new career avenues. I can spend more time with my family. You know, but choosing to respond in such a way that like God's got this and there's something good will come from this. And so that small practice of like, even to the smallest of inconveniences, you know, like spilling your coffee on your kitchen floor or something like that. Good. I get a second chance to make it even better, you know, or whatever it is, you know, or my floor really needed to get cleaned up anyway. So now I have an excuse to do it. You know, just always framing it in a way where I can look at everything in a way that I'm detached from allowing this to rob the joy that I can have today, to rob the peace. I can choose to respond with peace and contentment and recognizing these things do not have control over my day. I have control over how I respond to these things. And that is really a fundamental aspect of the Christian walk as a disciple. Is that I'm supposed to bring Jesus into all these situations. And Jesus is always good. Always good. Always true. Always beautiful. So always responding. You know, in disagreements, always responding. You know, um, good. I can see that we agree on this. Or good. I can see that you're really passionate about this. That's, that's exciting. Let's talk more. Instead of getting heated and... You know, using you know inappropriate language or making it you know volatile or whatever it might be. We always that will always kind of frame how you go about your day or how you enter any interaction if you just use that word first. Good, Matt. Um, a word that I kind of constitute with peace is surrender. So I like a few months ago when I was going through a hard time, um, I would pray this prayer of surrender. Like you wouldn't just surrender things that you feel are good, like your desires or your needs or your wants, but you would also surrender to Jesus your anxieties. Mm-hmm. So it's like you hear that, like, Jesus, take the wheel. It's yeah. like, you, if you let surrender, like, your entire being to Jesus, you will provide. And I think there's peace in that. It's like, no matter what happens, like, no matter how I feel, I may want something really bad. It's like, no, just surrender to Jesus. It's like, I may be fearful of something. Nope. Yeah. Like we practice that. Like I think that's what brings me peace, at least. Yeah. Peace being synonymous with surrender. You know, in every war or battle, there is not peace after it until one side raises the white flag and surrenders. The same thing is true in our spiritual life. You know, there will always be fighting or sometimes feeling there's this resistance with God. Like, God, why won't you do what I'm asking? Why won't you do what I want? We recognize, well, maybe this isn't the battle I need to be fighting. Maybe there's something else I need to be, be seeing here, something else you're doing. So I'm going to raise the white flag. Say, all right, Lord, I trust that you know what you're doing. And then the peace will come. Yeah, right. I'll give Bruce credit for, for, for pointing this out. <laughs> um, the line, the Holy Spirit's going to teach you everything. Mm-hmm. Was he just insinuating I gave you guys the introductory course? Or, or how, what, what, what does he mean by that? Yeah, that line there, the Holy Spirit that the Father will send in my name, he will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. So there's a sense there that Jesus did not teach everything, correct? And that's true. Jesus did not teach us everything. He taught us what was essential and then instilled in us and certain people, the people around him, the apostles, with divine authority and the power of the Holy Spirit so that a teaching body, aka the church, would develop in such a way that teaching would perpetuate over time. So everything that we believe, let's say everything that's in the catechism of the Catholic Church, not all of it came directly out of Jesus' mouth and can be quoted in Scripture. There are allusions to a lot of it and things that Jesus said, and then in the early church, especially in the New Testament, those that followed him, 
out of that power of the Holy Spirit. But there's also things that evolved over 2,000 years that all Christians practice that came from that revelation of Jesus, but evolved over time. And that was only possible because of the Holy Spirit. It's only possible because of the Holy Spirit. There's also kind of this, this uh, I don't know, a deepening of our realization of who Jesus is when we have the Holy Spirit. It says in, um, oh, I don't have this here marked, First uh, Corinthians chapter 12. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Oh, I'm so proud of myself. Okay. Um, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So by virtue of the fact that we can even acknowledge that Jesus is God, we only have that ability because of the Holy Spirit. And it kind of illuminates why the apostles struggled so much to understand what Jesus was trying to tell them, right? He was trying to reveal to them, this is how I'm going to suffer. This is how the Messiah is going to suffer. This is because I'm the Son of God. And they got it in some senses, but they also didn't in other senses. And it's because they were lacking in the understanding that is only possible when we receive the Holy Spirit. And then when they receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, everything changes. Peter goes from a bumbling idiot who can't stop putting his foot in his mouth and, you know, being called Satan and betraying Jesus, denying him three times, to someone who gives an impassioned speech about the gospel message and baptizes 3,000 people in a single day. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, he came, he revealed to us the full revelation of God. The full revelation of God, the ability to have eternal life, it says in, in the same, in the same uh, speech, eternal life is to know God, to know God. And we have the ability to know him now in the person of Jesus Christ. But the teaching that comes forth from that, Jesus did not give us all of that. He wanted us to have the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to perpetuate until the end of time, until the final judgment happens in the second coming, so that whatever might come up, we don't have to rely on imperfect human knowledge and authority. We can, abide, we can rely on perfect divine knowledge and authority through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to know definitively what is true and what is not. So yes, what Jesus gave us is in a sense incomplete because he knew it would be completed in the Holy Spirit. You can put it this way, Jesus did not fulfill his potential, but he fulfilled his purpose. He could have done a myriad of things and taught a myriad of things, but he knew exactly what he came to do. The same thing is true for us, right? I have to remind myself of that too. There, I have the potential to do a lot of different things, right? Could pursue many different avenues, many different careers. It's not a question of, am I fulfilling my potential? It's a question of, am I fulfilling my purpose? Because I can't out, outlive or out-disciple Jesus. And if he limited himself and knew, this is my, this is my mission, and I'm gonna tunnel vision focus on only this, only this mission, only this purpose, so that the Holy Spirit can then complete that, then I need to be aware of my need to do that too, my need to discern what is essential, what is my purpose, and then recognizing the power of the Holy Spirit. The really, I think the really powerful thing about that verse is that the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity that I think most Catholics have the least strong relationship with. And yet, it is the person of the Holy Trinity who is most present to us here now, today, and wanting to encounter us. God the Father revealed himself to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, confirmed that revelation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who walked here in the flesh in the incarnation. But Jesus then left and said, it is better for you that I go. It says that in the next chapter, in John 16, verse 6. It is better for you that I go, for if I do not go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and condemnation. He will reveal to us what is true and what is not, what is good and what is not. But without the Holy Spirit, we don't know what Jesus came to give us. And so it's a challenge for us as Catholics to really dive into that more charismatic nature of the Holy Spirit and relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a bird. Okay, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. The Trinity is not the old guy, the hippie, and the bird. Okay, God is a father, a loving father, and we are his children. Jesus is our brother, our savior, our rabbi, our Lord. And the Holy Spirit is revealed in the, in the, in the scripture as a person, as he, a man, who wrestles with Jacob in the Old Testament. It says the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. 
But not that the Holy Spirit is a dove or any particular symbol. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity. And do we have a relationship with that person? And does that relationship reveal to us a deeper understanding of the mission Jesus came to fulfill and the church that he came to institute and all of the revelation that, that he's poured out through it? A lot of hands. Greg. Well, you bring up an interesting point, but I think one reason sometimes people think about the Holy Spirit in kind of like an abstract sense is Old Testament here, God, God said, God the Father said, Jesus came and Jesus said. Mm-hmm. But how many times in the gospel or something else we hear the Holy Spirit said? We're taught what we need to, to learn, what we need to believe, mm-hmm. but the, when there's a pers- personification of God the Father, personification of Jesus in the flesh. Where's the personification of the Holy Spirit? It's very abstract. Yeah, that's true. I would say in Scripture it's true. In the early church, as it developed, not so much. It becomes very much that you know personification of the Holy Spirit and that kind of relational aspect, especially in the Eastern Church, the Eastern Church Fathers, like uh, Gregory Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil the Great, those Eastern Fathers. They have a huge developed theology of the Holy Spirit that we lost in a lot of the Western Church. And how do they just... personify the Holy Spirit? Uh, in a lot of different ways. I mean, it's both. It's both because the symbols teach us about the nature of the person. You know, just like, um, I don't know, like we have nicknames for people. You know, like, I'm trying, I don't know, someone's like the man of steel, you know, or something like that. If that's a nickname for someone, it means they're very strong. It teaches you about the nature of the person, but it's about a person. You know, so the Eastern nickname for the Holy Spirit was the, the wild goose. You know, this kind of, you know, and you've seen geese at the park, you know, they're not doves, you know, the doves are supposed to be these cute little loving, you know, geese are scary, you know, and the power of the Holy Spirit has this kind of scary nature to it. Uh, And so that personified, helped personify characteristics about the person of the Holy Spirit. I would agree with you that it's harder to codify into an image for us because we don't ever see even the Holy Spirit in artwork depicted as a person, but in scripture it is. He is a person. Uh, Magdalena. I don't remember if it says in the scripture somewhere else, but I heard somewhere that the Holy Spirit is love. Yes, so that's a, a, a theological construct about the nature of God being love. Okay, so it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, if someone does not have love, they do not know God, for God is love. And if you look at the Trinity, you have God the Father who is the lover, God the Son, who is the beloved, and the love between them is so strong, it manifests in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is the love in between them. And so in any loving relationship, you have to have all those things. You need to have the lover, the beloved, and the love in between them. The husband is the lover, the wife is the beloved, and the love in between them is so manifest that you name it nine months later, and it is a person. You know, So same thing is true in kind of the relational reality of the love of God, that the Holy Spirit is love kind of incarnate, in a sense. So yeah, and that's not directly spilled out in Scripture, but there's a lot of references to it. Uh, I really like that personification as a wild goose because I feel like, yeah, like you said, the Holy Spirit is the one that's closest to us right now. Yeah, like we'll go most of our lives without, like my dad always says, all of us are spiritual babies, and most of us go out our whole life continuing to be spiritual babies. So not yeah. many of us actually delve into, you know, what it means to be in communion with the Holy Spirit. So um, I think. As a wild goose, like that's very scary. Uh, a wild goose just seems very abstract and something obscure. Mm-hmm. But I think that's like how it starts. But maybe you know, as we grow closer to the Holy Spirit, it becomes more something that we understand. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I just comment. You know, I grew up calling the ghost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's called what he or she were. I'm not saying male or female, but. It's called a ghost all these centuries. Yeah. It's not too endearing. No, yeah, but that was because the, the kind of idea of a specter, of a spirit, um, that word, the word for that in German, um, you know, is translated as ghost. And so that was just a translation issue. And then once, yeah, we had like ghost hunters and things like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just an older version of a translation. Yeah, Bruce. Is there not a verse somewhere where Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as he? Yes, there is. Um, in fact, here, right? Um, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will say, he will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. 
Uh, there's a couple other places in this discourse. And, and then my question is, jumping back up to verse 21, where Jesus says, if you obey my commands, I will reveal myself to you. Well, he's up in heaven with the Father. So how does he reveal himself, or is this what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit, on his behalf, is going to keep speaking to us yeah. and revealing to us. Yes and yes. So this all ties to this verse in, um, or this phrase in verse 23, I think it is. Uh, we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. That phrase, make our dwelling with him. If you were to hear that as a Jew, you would have thought back to the Old Testament, to the tabernacle in the desert. Can you remember this when Moses led the Hebrew people out of Egypt? God instructs them to build a tent-like structure to house the Ark of the Covenant and different altars and holy items so that they can continually to make sacrifice to God in order to be forgiven of their sins, to show repentance, to purify themselves, to follow the 613 ritual laws of Judaism, all of those different things. And so that tabernacle was a dwelling for God. And when they built it, and they put the Ark of the Covenant in it, that pillar of fire and cloud that led them out of, the, uh, of Egypt, the presence of God, manifested over the tent. And it stayed there always. And if it up and left, they moved the tent and followed the direction of God until the cloud stopped, the presence of God stopped, and that was where they put up camp. And they did that for 40 years. And then when they came into the promised land, they continued to do that, moving the ark around, all around, until they were able to build a permanent structure, the temple, a new dwelling place that was modeled after, if you look at the designs of the Ark of the Covenant in Scripture, they have all these images of trees and fruits like the Garden of Eden, this new paradise where God was literally walking with humanity, literally making a dwelling with humanity on earth. The problem was we didn't have access. Only the priests, particularly the high priest, had access to that innermost place where God dwelled. And everyone had to go through the high priest. Now what happens with Jesus, and it says this in Hebrews, that Jesus is our new, once and for all, our eternal high priest. Meaning that he now mediates for us. And in the temple, there was a veil in the temple. Um, there was a drawing picture. Um, so the inside of the temple, this marker's dead. There we go. This is not to scale. The inside of the temple looked like this. In here was the Ark of the Covenant, and there was a big veil right here. Okay, and out here there was the menorah, there was the altar of incense, there was the altar of showbread, and then out here was um, the, the basin where they would wash, and then over here was the, uh, the altar of burnt sacrifice where they would off offer sacrifices. But this was in an enclosed structure, and even when they were in the Old Testament, in the desert, it was inside of a tent. And this here, this veil, only the high priest could enter through that veil, and only once a year. And it was to proclaim uh, or claim forgiveness of people's sins on the Day of Atonement, the only day of fasting in the Hebrew calendar. And he would approach the Ark of the Covenant. When they did this in the temple, they built a veil that was, I believe, 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide, and 3 to 6 inches thick. Massive veil. And any time the high priest went in there, if you enter the presence of God, like this is, the, this is where they believe God dwelt, like where he lived, where his powerful presence was. If you went in there unworthily, you'd be struck down dead. And so they used to tie ropes to the high priest when they would go in and put jingle bells on them. So if they fell down dead, they could hear and pull their body out. Okay, That's how intense the power manifestation of God was in this place. Now when Jesus dies on the cross, you may remember this detail in Matthew 27. Uh, this is in verse 51, or I'll start in verse 50. But Jesus cried again in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The separation now that the people had from God, where only the high priest could access, Jesus claims a position as the new high priest and saying, you no longer are separated from me. God is now revealed to you through me, and you now have direct access. And so this idea of being revealed, Jesus is revealing he is the full revelation of God. There is no separation through the priesthood anymore. He wants to reveal and show to us who God is and how God wants to know us. 
And so here it says we'll make our dwelling with him. God is going to be in our presence. And then after this, the veil is torn. And this is the language then that follows in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for the temple of God, which you are, is holy. That we become, as Peter puts it in one of his letters, living stones of the new temple of God. That God literally makes his dwelling in us. That's the power of the Eucharist. That's why we revere God and we acknowledge his presence in the Eucharist. Because when we consume the body and blood of Christ, we become living temples, living tabernacles. The presence of God is actually dwelling in us. Actually dwelling in us. One of my coworkers here, her son, just got First Communion for the first time, uh, the First Communion Masses over the past few weeks. And he received communion later in the day. He was like, Mommy, Jesus is still with me. She was like, oh, how do you know that? He says, because I haven't pooped yet. <laughs> but it's a very childish understanding of a reality that like God is in us. He knew that. Right? He knew that, that God lived and dwelled within him. And so we acknowledge that when we are, we become living, walking tabernacles of God. And that is what God wanted to, and that's how God wanted to reveal himself to us. He wanted to be intimately close to us. And Jesus begins that by having a human manifestation of God. It's no longer this mythical, mysterious cloud presence of God. Now he's here in the flesh as a man, but then he offers himself as the priest and the priestly sacrifice so that now we can become the dwelling place of God, the most intimate revelation of God possible. And that's only possible by virtue of the Holy Spirit who imbues the sacraments with grace. Yes? So is that, I, I haven't studied Jewish faith, but is that like the biggest distinction between like being religious and Jewish and being Catholic or Christian? Is that like, you just have to accept God's love to be Christian, but to be Jewish, you have to think, you have to like do certain practices, like you have to do that in order to appease God. Is that the idea? Like you cannot just be Jewish and say, "I love God. I am living out the way I'm supposed to live out my faith." Mm -hmm. Is that so? Is that like the biggest distinction? Would you say? Between oh, it's hard to answer that question because. Judaism 2,000 years ago is different than Judaism today. And you have Hasidic Judaism, which is very as close as, as it can be without a temple. The temple was destroyed in the year 70. So all of the ways in Scripture that we know that the Jewish people practiced, they could no longer do that. And so that radically changed their worship and their belief system, or at least the, the practices of their belief system. However, the essential kind of um, core beliefs of Judaism are that, yes, God does love us. He gave us his law. And following God, obeying the commandments, is how we know that we are, they would probably use the word righteous, or how that God will vindicate us, uh, and that we will be walking the way of the just. And a lot of the language of the Psalms is all about like your attitude, your behavior, lining up with the laws that God gave. And that is how you kind of show that there's this relationship with God. But they believed in these covenants in the way that God wanted to you know, make covenants with us, but we, could always, we always broke them. And so the difference there is that the Jewish people are still waiting for their Messiah to come and make that covenant eternal. They don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah that was promised. We do, and so we acknowledge that our salvation is now through Jesus and the teaching he revealed. They would not agree with that, obviously. But a lot of the fundamental principles about like you know, walking the talk and, and all of that would be the same. But they're, the way they follow certain laws and the degree of certain laws that we left behind as Christians that are more cultural or ritual oriented, depending on the degree of Judaism that is practiced today, whether Hasidic, Orthodox, Progressive, or some other Reformed, um, it would depend on how they're practicing that, if that answers your question. No, yeah. yeah. And, and are there any like Catholic practices or rituals that are like very Bible, like in the Bible says we do X, Y, Z, and we kind of do it exactly the way the Bible said. Because I know mm -hmm. like Judaism, you're saying that's how a lot of things are practiced. It says literally don't um, right, exert energy so they can't turn off the lights. Some, some Jewish people practice. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right? So yeah, well, the things you can't do on the Sabbath, yeah. We follow things that by the book. Um, I would say a lot of the uh, like core sacramental language 
um, that comes from scripture, yeah, like the words of institution from the Last Supper, those are the exact words that are said at Mass, and if one of them is not said correctly, it's not a valid institution. Um, baptism, if baptism isn't done by the Trinitarian formula in Matthew 28, 20, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, with a particular language, it's not a valid baptism. If confirmation doesn't have the laying on of hands, like in Acts chapter 8, verse 14, of a validly ordained bishop, it's not a valid confirmation. So all of those kind of meticulous, detail-oriented things where you get the sacraments from Scripture, um, we follow those still. Now, they developed you know, more language and a, a more coherent structure as the church developed. Um, but the core sacramental language, so like this is what Jesus instituted or the early church practiced, yes, it has to be. You know, there has to be certain rubrics and uh, phrases or uh, language that's used, or it's not valid. Yeah. Like the whole scandal of baptisms in the in Arizona, you know, where that priest invalidly baptized people for like 20 years, and they just found out about it. You know, I, these are poor details, I'm paraphrasing, but, and it was simply because instead of saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he said, we baptize you. That's it. One word difference. And it completely invalidated that because it's not the community that baptizes, baptizes, it's the authority that Jesus gave a validly ordained priest. And because he didn't use the proper language, all of those had to be redone. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, like, so there's certain things that the priest does during the Mass that the, we, is it that like we require the priest to intercede for us for certain prayers? Is that like he's looking at the hands and praying? I know this sometimes the congregation does a job. Yeah. I'm not sure what Vatican II said about that, but like, um, that's why the priest is, is there, right? I mean, it's essentially, I mean, the priest is there in persona Christi. So yeah, he's in the person of Christ. He's a validly ordained and trained minister who can do that. Nobody else can. But the reason why we take the language so seriously is because the words come from Jesus, and we choose not to cherry pick or revise what God incarnate, the Savior of the world, said, um, or edit what he said, because we don't know better. And we rely on the fact that if God said to do it this way for a particular reason, we should do it that way for that particular reason, and we don't have the authority to change it. Yeah. Sorry, to no, no, no. You're good. You're good. <laughs> yeah, John. Sort of related, at least in my mind, just questions that came up is that in this reading, he's giving us the Holy Spirit and will continue to teach us, <laughs> teach us what I didn't teach you. So I think what it's really saying to us is that Revelation didn't just happen and end. Revelations, I mean, we're, 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 we're being revealed to us today, tomorrow, the next day. The revelation of God to us is going on. And that, uh, to me, that's a, that's pretty cool. You know, yes. Even when you think about creations, creation just didn't happen and now it ended. Yeah, and creation is still going on. This this universe, even our science stuff, the universe is expanding. So the creation that we have to reflect the the Almighty, our Creator, and all the greatness of it. That's all. In, it's all still growing. Yeah, it's still matters. Yeah, revelation is is ongoing. However, public revelation where we get our core doctrines and dogmas of Catholicism, we believe that public, that's called public revelation, ended with the death of the last apostle. So every single Catholic dogma, like any um, non-negotiable Catholic belief or doctrine that is required for all Catholics to believe or adhere to, needs to be traced back to something within the lifetime of the apostles. Once the death of the last apostle, John, happened, all the, relation, the revelation after that is called private revelation. And no Catholic is bound to believe any of it. Everything that we believe, everything that's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, can be traced back to Scripture or the early Church writings of the authoritative teachings of the Twelve Apostles, and all ended with the death of that last Apostle. So no new teaching, no new revelation is going to come from, from anywhere, um, unless it aligns with what was previously believed. However, the way God speaks to us, that level of revelation, personal revelation in that sense, Yes, always ongoing. But in terms of, uh, I want to make that distinction because that word is used in theology and in catechesis a lot. Public revelation when it comes to the teachings of the church. Um, everything that we believe we needed to know, the fullness of the Catholic faith, was already revealed by the time the last apostle died. And we can trace everything that we believe or practice back to that. Those, those 12 men 
or the, the words of Jesus and that first century of the church. Yeah, Jerry. Um, back on the points where you said like uh, the baptism would totally like invalid. Mm-hmm. Could that be the same with like marriages? Like, yes. Yeah, if marriage vows are not said properly, they are invalid. So if you if you want to say your own vows at a Catholic wedding, you can, but there is certain language that you have to say and have to include, and if you say that wrong, then you have to, yeah, no pressure, Roger. Um, and anyone else preparing to get married, Emily? Um, Nick, so, but no pressure. But um, usually the priest will say, repeat after me. He won't make you memorize it. Yeah, so... Yeah, but it has to be. It has to be. Um, has to be said directly. You know the actual language of the vows. Yeah, Nick. Um, always really like the word advocate, especially how it describes the advocate, the Holy Spirit. But what did that uh, translate from? Uh, I think Greek or um, you know uh, whichever yeah. word came from. So the word here for the Holy Spirit, the advocate uh, in in Greek, that's parakletos. Uh, and it's, it's where we get the word the paraclete, the title of the Holy Spirit. And it, it means um, a comforter or advocate, someone who would uh, kind of argue on your behalf. Um, I believe this was a term used in a court of law or in legal defense at the time of Jesus, where someone would come and be your, your advocate in a court of law. They would argue for you, almost be like a, a, a civil defense attorney or something like that for you if you were accused of something. That's kind of a title associated with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will always... Uh, defend us, will always argue for us, will always be there um, to to comfort us in moments of need and guide us in moments of need. So that's where that, that comes from. Yes, Greg? The, the sentence, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You said they came from Jesus? Yeah. When? Matthew twenty eight twenty. Just go forth and baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He didn't do it, he just told them. Oh. Yeah, and, and in John it does say that him and the apostles go and participate in the baptism ministry of John the Baptist. There's there's it's a very passing verse in a couple areas of John uh, where the the apostles do that. Uh, there's a distinction made that John that Jesus doesn't, but the apostles do through the direction of Jesus. Um, I wanted to point out a verse here that I'm surprised nobody brought up, and you can say if this stood out to you. Uh, this may be confusing for some people, uh, where Jesus says. You would rejoice that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Did you do that? Yeah, Audrey? I was going to text you about that. I was just <laughs> reading this, and then I was going to text you, and I totally forgot to, and it was in my phone, and yeah. I saw it from that. The Father is greater than I. What is that about? Isn't Jesus God? Isn't that kind of confusing? Is God the Father greater than Jesus? He tells me what to say. Because he's <laughs> So this is a verse, it's a very kind of important historical note. This verse was used by a heretic named Arius um, at the Council of Nicaea to argue the heresy of Arianism, which he is named for, that Jesus was a man that God imbued with divine power and authority, but that Jesus was not himself God, that he didn't have a divine nature, that he only had a human nature. And there's a very famous council because... A lot of people believed in Arianism. Uh, the, the, um, the actual truth, the Trinitarianism, was a, a minority. And even the emperor, uh, Constantine, was an Arian at the beginning of the council. And my favorite story of this council is that one of the saints at this council, St. Uh, Nicholas of Myra, you may know him as Santa Claus, got so mad at Arius the heretic that he punched him in the face and got thrown in jail. Um, best Santa story ever. So, uh, But a uh, real story of a real saint. But eventually... Um, they came to St. Nicholas in jail, and they found that he'd been given a Bible from a vision of an angel, and they didn't know how he got it. And they saw that there was divine authority and divine, you know, kind of words being spoken through him. So they let him out of jail, brought him back to the council, and him and the other Trinitarians were able to convince the early church that Jesus was, in fact, using citations from Scripture, he was, in fact, God himself. The reason Jesus uses this language is to emphasize here his human nature. Jesus has a human nature and a divine nature. And we call that in Catholic theology the hypostatic union. Hypo meaning two, static meaning personalities or natures. The union of his two natures. We believe that he is 100% human and 100% God. If he was not 100% human, he could not have died. If he was not 100% God, he could not have risen from the dead. It's a very complicated math. Uh, but that 
Jesus here is emphasizing his human nature. And you can see this also in Philippians as a very famous Christ hymn. We, we read this all the time as the second reading at Mass throughout the year. Have among yourselves the same attitude that is yours also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, divine identity, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, meaning wielded for his own benefit. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found in human appearance. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, if ever someone points to that verse to try and uh, convince you of the heresy of Arianism, who knows, it could happen. Uh, you know how to respond to that. So, anyways. Yeah, Ian. This kind of reminds me of that angel question, like, can God make promises so that you can't lift it? Mm-hmm. And is this kind of the idea, how does, does this kind of fit in, under that argument as well, like, God is looking for things that are logically perfect? So, like, you can't make something logically perfect because that would be completely illogical? Yes, yeah, our, um, how do I answer this succinctly? Um, like, philosophically and, like, theoretically in terms of astrophysics, like, the laws of the universe God bound himself to. So God could not make a round square. Um, there, there can be no such thing as a married bachelor. You know, those things, they're, they're illogical incongruities or paradoxes that God cannot violate because God created the universe with these particular laws. And he is bound by, uh, he is a logical being. You know, he does not do things that are illogical or paradoxical in a sense that they don't make sense with, you know, the nature of things, if that makes sense. So, but this has more to do with the nature of Jesus. This is like more about the essence of like divinity. Yeah, his divine origin, his divine nature, his human nature coexisting. So one of the symbols of the resurrection, if you ever see an image of Jesus and he's doing the Boy Scout salute like this, it's an artistic image where he is saying, I have two natures. And that's always when he's resurrected, because if he didn't have two natures, if he wasn't both human and divine, he could not have risen from the dead. So if you ever see Jesus doing this in art, it's a symbol of the resurrection, meaning his two natures. Uh, and also, there's an Eastern way of making the sign of the cross, like this. You cup your fingers like this, these three fingers, for the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And your two fingers here represent the human and divine nature of Jesus. And you make the sign of the cross like that. Um, so that's what they do in the East. So, a little fun fact for you. Anyway, uh, a lot of great theology tonight. I'm excited. Uh, we got to nerd out quite a bit. Hopefully your head doesn't hurt. So, uh, we're over time, so let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for just the wisdom of this passage and this room and for your Holy Spirit flowing in and through us and just guiding us to know you more deeply, to understand our faith, to get excited about it, to ask those difficult questions, to delve into the realms of philosophy and theology so that we can know you more deeply. And ultimately, Lord, the real core of this passage tonight, just to help us be convicted to know that there's more, always more of you to know. And that if we have an insufficient relationship with the Holy Spirit, that you would allow us to be open to you, Holy Spirit, that you would come to us, that you would fill our lives, transform us, enliven in us by virtue of the fact that we've received the sacraments of baptism or confirmation, that your Holy Spirit is living in us. You are, we are your dwelling place, Lord. We are living tabernacles. So we pray that powerful presence of God would manifest in our lives, would work in us and through us um, to build the kingdom here on earth. So we pray, God, that you would give us the strength to do that, the openness to receive you in that way, and the sensitivity to know how your Holy Spirit is moving and how we can grow in relationship with you. We pray all of these things in your most holy name. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.